You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Our message today comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Good to see y'all. You there? I know y'all got masks on, but come on. Um, I mean, it's a heavy word today. Uh, but I do think that we're going to find some hope in it as well. Um, as you guys know, uh, uh, one of our pastors, Pastor Will, he's, he's uh, on a sabbatical right now, so continue to pray for him. Things are going well. I just, I just chatted with him this week. Uh, they're just living it up, getting some good rest time. Uh, enjoying time together as a family. Uh, Will's highlight so far, I don't think you would mind me sharing this, is just long times of Bible reading with no like thing on the back end of it that he's got to get to, you know? You know that feeling when you're just on vacation and you just get time uh, in the Word. So uh, things are going well there. Uh, we're finishing up today our sermon series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then next week, starting on Easter, we're going to look at resurrection. Uh, Pastor Joe's going to be up here, and then uh, we'll, that's like kind of the kickoff to a series thinking about our future hope, the, uh, the, the time that will be to come when Christ comes. And so that's where we're kind of going with our sermon series in the next uh, few weeks. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into, into this text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for uh, your grace to us. We thank you for, for corporate worship. What a blessing that is to be able to sing praises to you. Uh, to hear one another's voices is, uh, as Colossians 3, uh, Lord says, is encouraging. As we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would, uh, you'd be with us this morning. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts and our affections for you. Lord, I, uh, would you help to clarify your gospel in our hearts? And then, Lord, would you firmly root it within us? And then, Lord, produce joy. Lord, as we sang that one song this morning, uh, thinking of Jesus, your, your heavenly return, what joy forevermore we will enjoy uh, in heaven. But Lord, we ask for a taste of that right now. God, I do just pray for humility as I, t- as I preach this text. Lord, I pray that no, uh, no self-righteousness would come across, no sort of, I have it all together. Uh, but God, I pray that this word, Lord, would speak for itself. Um, Father, would you use me to minister to your people? Uh, God, I pray that uh, your spirit would... Um, and be quick to give grace, Lord, where someone might feel they're, uh, uh, Lord, they're the person that's too far from you. God, may it not be so. Uh, may they see they're in good company. We're just a bunch, bunch of people, a bunch of sinners who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. 
And so, Father, we come under your word asking, Lord, you to lead, to speak, Lord, minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll say a lot of things about the age that we're in, the times that we're in. One of the things that we're in is an age of expertise, and I don't think it's well warranted. I don't think we're just a bunch of experts. I think it's false expertise. Uh, one, of the, one of the primary ways that we, uh, I think, have gained some false expertise is just we're in the information age, so we have everything at our fingertips, so all it takes is just a, a web browser, and then uh, a few minutes later, after you read some bullet points and some headlines, you are, in fact, an expert. I know because I've done it myself. One particular way that I fall into this trap is when I have something I need to do that I don't know anything about. What do I do? I got to fix it. Let's say I got to fix it. Where do I go? I go to YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Google works too, but I don't have time to read. I got to fix a thing. So I go to YouTube. And then what do I do? I I find a video of some dude who uploaded like seven years ago, uh, unclogging his bathtub, right? Like, not that that's a real situation. It's just maybe it happened uh, fictitiously to someone. Uh, So I Google, or I YouTube, right, whatever verb you want to use. I look for a video on someone unclogging their bathtub. And then I watch the person on that video do the thing. And man, when I'm watching it, I'm like, man, that is so easy. This Man, like, gosh, thank the Lord for YouTube. I now know how to do the thing. And so I get out my little snake and then I, I do, I unscrew the things just like the guy on YouTube seven years ago did. And then I shove the snake down in there. And because I'm so confident in my expertise, my ability to unclog this hairy monster that's in the bottom trenches of this pipe, uh, I turn and I turn the snake. If you know what I'm talking about, you know, you little, this thing, and you get the gaps. I'm like, well, hold on. I was an expert. So how did this happen? Like, I'm, an ex- I'm good at stuff. I watched the YouTube video. And so then I managed to thankfully get it out. And then I called the real expert because I know that all I did was watch a video. And even though I did a thing does not make me an expert. Well, <clears throat> here's what's happening. It's false confidence. You can assure me that you could fix my clog because you know something and you've done something. That does not mean that you know a lot, that you really know how to do the thing. You're not really necessarily an expert. Just because you know a lot about something and you've done some stuff doesn't mean you're an expert. Apply this, let's say, to, uh, I don't know, like relationships. Maybe let's take a relative, let's say a brother. It's a fictitious brother that you have. But let's say in this circumstance, you somehow got separated from your brother at birth. So you've never met your brother ever. You just come to find out that you do have a brother. Uh, And maybe he's like, he's famous. So he's wealthy, he's influential, he's got a lot of power. Basically, he's Googleable, right? Like you can find out about this long lost brother that you just found out that you have. And let's suppose you even learned, although this is creepy, you learned where he lived. So you learned all kinds of stuff about who he is, and then you learned out where he lived. And so in this weird effort to bridge the relational divide, maybe you even did some stuff to get his attention. You did some stuff for him. Maybe you just showed up and you mowed his grass, or you walked his dog, or you ordered him some Grubhub from a restaurant he liked. 
But then one day you're at work and one of your coworkers comes up to you and they're like, hey, what'd you do over the weekend? And you're like, oh, I was hanging out with my brother. Met him. And then your coworker, he calls HR. It's like, I don't know who this guy is. Like, this dude is a creep. He's never actually met the person. He's known some stuff about his brother. He's done some stuff for his brother, but he's never actually met. He doesn't know his brother because everyone knows that knowing about someone and doing things for them does not mean you really know them. Knowing about someone and doing things for them doesn't equal actual relationship. Just imagine that it's not your long lost brother, but your heavenly father. See, this is Jesus's main point in this text. And I think it makes sense that he bring it up at the end of his long sermon. The first week, Rich gave us a, a really helpful summarization of the Sermon on the Mount. The first little part about it is, is being salt and light. What does it look like for the people of God to be salt and light? What does it look like to live in this kingdom? And then you fast forward to chapter seven and it's all about judgment. So it's straight and narrow. Don't judge one another or lest ye be judged. Last week we talked about false prophets and today we're talking about false disciples, ultimately asking the question, who is righteous before the Lord? That is the question of chapter seven. And in this passage, the question asked is who actually enters the kingdom of heaven and who doesn't? And the answer, put simply, is that the person who knows Jesus is saved by Jesus. But the problem of this text is that knowing about Jesus and doing things for Jesus does not mean that you actually know Jesus. Listen, this is not a light text. We've said it several times this morning. It is heavy, and so I think then our response should be similar. We should approach it with a bit of weight, a bit of gravity. So I know a bunch of you have read this text a ton of times, but I want all of us to come before this word and hear what the Spirit might have to say through it to you. This passage, I don't think, is hard to understand, but it is hard to swallow. It is clear, which is why we'd like to muddy the meaning, like Instagram Bible quotes that you can slap onto a mountain range with a little square around it, right? Like, this is not one of those texts. I don't see anybody like putting on Instagram, like, I never knew you, depart from me, right? That's because we know what's up. This is a hard text. What I do think, though, is that this word, although heavy and hard to swallow and clear, is enormously helpful. Uh, it's enormously hopeful because it helps us know with certainty that we can know Jesus and that we can be known by him. So in order to unpack Jesus's difficult words this morning, uh, we're going to first think about who doesn't enter the kingdom, and then we're going to think about what Jesus says to them. And then we're going to think about who does enter the kingdom and what Jesus says to them. So let's start with who doesn't enter. Let me reread verses 21 through 22. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do my, many mighty works? In your name. See, there's essentially three characteristics given about those who do not inherit salvation, who don't enter the kingdom of heaven. In this text, we have three of them. 
One is that they are knowledgeable about Jesus. They know a lot about Jesus. Secondly, they do stuff for Jesus. And then thirdly, that they don't really, they say to him twice. It happens in verse 21 and in verse 22. They say, Lord, comma, Lord, Lord, Lord. Listen, this is an accurate statement. They know something that is true about Jesus. In order for Jesus to be your savior, he must be your Lord. It must be found that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If he is Lord, that means Jesus is in authority over you. What he says goes. There is no split percentage agreement on your life and who gets to set the agenda and make the rules in relationship with Jesus. If he's Lord, he gets all of it. So calling him Lord is correct. They know true things about Jesus. It also demonstrates an outward devotion. Anytime the Bible repeats a word, it's like adding bolded text or font and, and then th or like three exclamation points at the end of your text message. It's adding strength to the words. Lord, Lord. It's adding weight. This group of people is expressing outwardly a strength of knowledge about Jesus, that they really know Jesus is Lord. Now, we're gonna get into this later, but notice there is a group of people that say, Lord, Lord, and then it says, and not everyone who says it will enter the kingdom. That means the group who doesn't enter actually knows something about Jesus that the group who does enter also knows. So this group of people who doesn't enter into salvation, into the kingdom, they know about Jesus, and they know about him even passionately, and that's good and right, and yet it isn't enough. It isn't enough. Man, how many of us, especially if you've been walking with Jesus, you've been in the church for a long time, lean on your knowledge about the Lord to make you feel close to Jesus? We pull out the Bible references, the theological words, or the super spiritual sounding encouragements that seem so right and so helpful. And listen, it can be good and helpful at times. As we grow as Christians, we should be growing in our understanding of God's word, our ability to rightly divide the word of truth, to encourage the body, to be able to uh, offer some wisdom. Those are all good and right things. But when our externally displayed knowledge of God is the thing that we look to to provide our close to Jesus, we can be misled. Assurance of salvation does not come by looking at how much we know about Jesus. Man, scripture says the demons know a lot about Jesus. Well, what's the second thing that's true about the people who don't enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's that they do stuff for Jesus. Let me read it again, verse 22. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, so notice they are affirming something true and they're affirming it strongly. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Listen, this is not a lame list. Like their accolades aren't weak. How many of you have prophesied or cast out demons or done some miracles this week, right? These, joke, these jokers are fruitful. Like they are doing some work. There's some ministry productivity, some spiritual fruit that's coming from this group. 
And listen, as an aside, this isn't a sermon on spiritual giftedness. Uh, we preach through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, in particular chapters 12 through 14, which bring up spiritual gifts and particularly miraculous spiritual gifts. Go on our website, find that, listen to it. Uh, but Jesus is, a, is affirming some of this work right here. He's not saying the work is what caused them to not enter the kingdom of God. He's saying this is work that happens when Christians walk by the spirit and dependence on the Lord. This kind of stuff happens. But listen, this group of people know about Jesus and they do incredible spiritual work for him, which is good and right. And yet it isn't enough. Validate ourselves or justify ourselves before others or even before ourselves for that matter or even before God, lean on our ministry fruitfulness or our, our competency or the, the value we add to the world or to your church community. Maybe you're, you're seeing the sin in your life, the struggles of doubt that you face, and then you're, just, you're quick to run to or point to all the times that you've given of yourself or helped someone or met a need or sang on the worship team, or showed up early to set up, or led a flawless Bible study, or counseled someone practically right into heaven. Like, we do that. We lean on the things that we've done and, and performed, although good and right, but they do not validate our entrance and assurance into salvation. I mean, one, one way I've found myself doing this uh, is in moments when I need to confess sin before some brothers, and I gotta immediately follow it up with all the good things I did to balance out my bad. It's the same thing, I'm trying to justify my righteousness. I'm not that bad. Or if I had an especially unfruitful week or, or season maybe, and the way I make myself feel better about it is I remember all the other good work I'm doing or the cool things I get to be a part of or maybe some of the things that will be done. Listen, ministry fruit is a blessing but it does not guarantee salvation and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. What's the best example of this? Well, think about how Jesus sent all of his, old, all of his, uh, his 12 disciples, he sent them on a little mission trip, right? He's like, hey, go out with the word uh, and you know, preach, preach the gospel, call for repentance, all that. Mark 6 says this when they came back. So they went out and healed them. So they were crazy fruitful. Well, y'all remember Judas, he went with them. Judas was there all along, man. And I don't think anyone wants to argue he's the next Billy Graham. He was fruitful, and doesn't mean he inherited salvation. Man, think of the amazing fruit that God still uses that was actually done in Jesus' name, but come to find out later, the vessel, the person used by the Lord was, was jacked. Their life was a wreck, and we just didn't know it. Fruitfulness does not equal salvation. Man, showing up to church every week doesn't give you salvation. It's a good thing to do, but it's not enough. So it really comes down to this. Knowing about Jesus and doing stuff for Jesus does not mean you really know Jesus. Jesus is describing a group of people who know who he is and they pro proudly proclaim that he is Lord. They know the answers to the Bible trivia. They've got the lyrics memorized so they can close their eyes and hold their hands open. Man, they, they always got a verse for whatever you're going through. 
They know about Jesus. He's describing a group of people who do a lot for Jesus. They're incredibly fruitful. They lead some great Bible studies, people getting slain in the spirit whenever they talk. That's another sermon. (laughs) They travel the world for missions. They show up early to everything the church does. On the outside, it seems so good, right? And yet, Jesus has some incredibly difficult words for him. Let's read verse 23. Jesus speaking says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the primary words that Jesus has for them is, I never knew you. For most of us, when we say that we know someone, we generally mean that we have connection. So say that about this group of people. I mean, they seem to know a lot about Jesus. They seem to have done plenty for him and for plenty of religions in the world, like take, for instance, Mormonism, that would actually be enough. But Jesus says, I never knew you. Well, I think we got to look back at what is the storyline of scripture. See, at the beginning, God, who existed eternally, As one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, truly relational, created mankind, man and woman, to mirror God's goodness. He made them in the image of God, to be in relationship with him. He created them for worship, not because he needed their worship and relationship, but because he delighted in giving of himself for his glory and our good. He showed them that the way they would worship him as God would be to obey him and and depend upon him. But rather than worship him, they chose to break fellowship with him by disobeying. They rebelled against him. They no longer saw him as God, but they worshiped and served creation over the creator. They wanted his stuff rather than him. See, a mutiny of the highest sort had happened and had been committed against this perfect God. And the punishment for mankind's rebellion was death and separation, physical and spiritual. They were cast out from the presence of God. Relationship with God had been severed. A holy God could not be in relationship with an unjust people. They departed from him. They would live out their days in spiritual deadness, walking in wickedness and rebellion. The Lord gave them what they wanted, which wasn't him. They would one day die and their souls would... Man, imagine a place where there's an absence of the very character of God. There's an absence of peace, of goodness. No love, no kindness, no mercy, no true justice. Hell, eternal suffering. See, God is a God of justice. The punishment always fits the crime. Rebellion against the God who gives life deserves death. And for each one of us, the same is true. Earlier in our liturgy, Chris led us through Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. It says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Man, we can't even fulfill the 10 commandments, let alone the rest. 
The holiness God requires is the holiness only he has power to fulfill perfectly. Every one of us comes under the law of God. Think the standard of God. We come under that and we're counted as unrighteous, cursed, guilty, deserving of punishment. Listen, no knowledge of him nor stuff we've done for him can absolve us of the punishment that we face. So think of verse 23 then. Notice how on that last day, they're saying, Lord, Lord, here's all the stuff I did. They say to him, what does Jesus do? He declares over them. When they stand before the throne in judgment, they say to Jesus in order to validate their entrance, but Jesus declares to them, See, Jesus is Lord. He has the power to condemn some to hell, eternal punishment, and separation from God because he is, in fact, Lord. Now, I said earlier that in this passage, the primary question asked is who actually enters the kingdom and who doesn't? And the answer, put simply, is the person who knows Jesus is saved by Jesus. Because knowing about Jesus and doing things for Jesus does not mean that you really know Jesus. So it begs the question, how do I know if I really know Jesus in the way that he promises salvation? How can I figure out which group I am in then? Will I hear from Jesus' answer that? We got to see what Jesus says about who does enter and then what he says to them. And to figure out who does enter into the kingdom, I think we're given two very important yet distinct and related clues. First, that salvation is given, not earned. Salvation is given, not earned. I mean, think about what's happening in verse 22 when they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They're validating themselves. They're showing their proof of purchase to Jesus and saying, here is why I really do deserve entrance into the kingdom. They're taking their receipt and sliding it across the table at Walmart and saying, see, I did. Right? It's a proof of purchase, saying this validates my entrance. What does he call this group of people who don't enter the kingdom? He calls them workers of lawlessness. So interesting that the group of people we'd all assume were perfectly righteous, right? Who know about Jesus and they do things for Jesus. They're actually referred to as workers of lawlessness. Other translations might say evildoers. Their knowledge about Jesus and their ministry for Jesus, because it was the replacement for actually knowing Jesus, was lawless work or evil. Man, it's such a perfect description of what self-righteousness really is. It was put forward as proof of purchase. The receipt of their supposed salvation that they are demonstrating that they do deserve because who paid for it? Them. They earned it. They paid for their salvation. But the salvation that Jesus promises does not See, salvation is not given, I mean, excuse me, is not earned, it is given. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ. Anything other than that is salvation by works, it's self-righteousness. 
Ephesians chapter two, if you have it, if you have your Bibles, pull open to Ephesians chapter two. Such a key verse. We read this for our, I think it was our assurance of pardon. Ephesians chapter two, start off in in verse one. Man, it's such a good passage because it helps us to understand the order of the gospel, right? Every single week we rehearse the gospel through our liturgy, God, man, Christ response, or we take a bigger kind of meta-narrative view, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, because we think it's vital that we don't get it mixed up you don't, you don't work your way to Jesus and then uh, you're given grace, but rather it's a f- you were dead in your trespasses and sins and it's by grace that you've been saved. Let me read verses one through three. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That means we're all swept up into that. We're all sinners in need of salvation. It starts off by affirming that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were patterned after Satan Satan in our rebellion against God, that we were carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath. But then verse four, one of the most helpful little phrases in scripture says, but God, he didn't leave you there. He said, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He initiated. He made a way. He acted. Why? Because he is rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved you. Bound by the same law that we were under, but who actually fulfilled it to a T. And he was in perfect communion with God the whole time as a blameless, innocent, perfect man, yet divinely powerful. He humbled himself by taking the punishment that we deserved upon himself. And he paid the debt that we owed by dying on the cross. You see, the Bible describes this as a gift. What does verse eight say? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is the finished work of Christ, freely offered to us as a gift for our salvation. And how do we accept that gift? Through faith which Ephesians even describes as a gift. Remember, you were dead, incapable of anything. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. There is no need to validate yourself before the Lord because faith in Jesus is all the validation you will ever need. No work, no ministry fruit, no perfect record, no list of accomplishments, no proof of purchase needs to be put on the counter because you don't rely on yours, you rely on his. You want to know whether or not you know Jesus in the way that you enter into the kingdom? Ask yourself this. Do you trust in Jesus as your only hope, your only source of righteousness, your only salvation? 
If yes, then you are saved by faith, by grace, through faith in Christ. And that free gift of God's grace, that forgiveness, that reconciliation back into relationship with him is offered to you right now, right where you are sitting. Nothing stands in the way of you coming to Jesus because it doesn't count on you. You're good works or you're bad. Christ. So first, those who truly know Jesus Christ, who trust in Christ himself for salvation, not any work. Secondly, those who know Jesus recognize that our knowledge of him is not disconnected from our obedience to him. This is what the Bible actually calls faith. See, the problem described in verse 21 is the person who knows about Jesus but does not do the will of the Father. Think about the passage taken in the positive, right? The one who does say, Lord, Lord, and does the will of my Father, does enter the kingdom of heaven. See, in order for us to understand this, I think we need to have a rooted biblical definition and understanding of faith. Faith could be simply understood as belief. I believe with reasonable evidence and some sense of internal conviction in my mind, in my heart, that that chair is in fact a chair, right? That's belief. Faith is not hollow nor mystical, yet it is something that remains an intellectual or emotional concept if it's just only belief. Like I just, I know that's a chair. So you imagine with me that I have faith that that is a chair. I believe that that is a chair. But I refused to sit in it for fear that if I did, I would be launched to the moon. That's absurd, right? You would say that's absurd. Please say that's absurd. That is not, that chair is not gonna take you to the moon. Thank you, I'm, I'm glad someone affirmed that. Well, you would say to me, like Evan did, I think it was, who called me weird, uh, we'll, you know, we'll have another confession later. Uh, well, Brian, clearly you don't believe that that really is a chair or you would sit in it. You must actually believe that it is a rocket ship. Now, if I were to sit in that chair, that doesn't necessarily mean I believe it's a chair. You could come with all kinds of redeeming into it. But the point remains, see the Bible chair that I'm willing to sit in the chair. I'm glad to do it. See, the Bible describes that true faith is not separated from obedience. Our understanding, our belief in something is not disconnected from what we do. It necessarily follows, though. You see, belief precedes obedience. Our faith in Christ precedes our getting it together, right? We certainly know that. We just spent a long amount of time recognizing that you've been, you've been by grace through faith in Christ. It's not of your own doing. However, the Bible does hold up this tension that obedience does follow from true faith. See, knowing Jesus, or excuse me, let me, let me back up. I think of, of James chapter one, right? Like it says, don't merely be hearers of the word, but be doers, deceiving yourselves. Or James chapter two, 
says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I say it's a chair, but I'm not willing to sit in it. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, some, just some niceties, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, faith in who he is and what he did for you. This love poured out for you then produces love in return. So you willingly and gladly obey him. May he has done so much for you. He has offered his life for you, given the free gift of grace, and you are now in relationship with him. And you, as you see and behold that love, you lovingly follow him as Lord because you have faith that he's Lord. Do you see the interplay? See, if he really is Lord, then that necessarily means you are not. True faith in Jesus gives birth to obedience to Jesus. Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven enters into the kingdom of God. D.A. Carson said in his commentary on the topic, he said, it's true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance or church membership without church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. I might add another one, fruitfulness without faithfulness. How can you be assured that you have salvation and that you know Christ? Do you have true faith in Jesus? Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. It's a gift freely offered to you in Christ and all you must do is in the words of Romans 10, 10 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus really is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then the mark of your true faith in that saving grace in Christ is a willingness to obey him. Savior. Not because we're pious, but because we stray. And each time the gospel brings us back to the only true Lord. So we gladly repent because we know that it's only in Jesus that we have grace. So what will you hear on the last day? Jesus himself will declare over you, if you have true faith in him, he will declare over you that he knew you. So come to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Communion is a practice that reminds us every week of the salvation that we've been given through Christ. His body broken and his blood poured out for us is for our salvation. And so after I pray, I just invite you to take the elements of communion, remembering the gospel, the free gift of God's grace 
taken through faith in Christ. You've been, free, you've been set free. And now you can with confidence, with assurance, know that on that last day, Jesus will say over you that he knew you. And so you can come, enter in to the grace of your master. But some of you here today might be thinking that what the Lord will likely say to you on that last day is I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Friend, the gospel is not for the theologically knowledgeable or the super religious. It's for the sinner. That's all of us. That's why we gather every week to sing praises to Jesus. Because we want to know this Jesus. Assurance, affirmation that you will on that last day enter into the joy of King Jesus. You want to know what it looks like to take that next step of faith in Christ Man, rather than taking communion this morning, which is reserved for those who would say they are Christians, they, they believe this gospel, rather than taking communion, man, I'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, or no doubt if you have a, a friend here, they would love to just share with you the gospel, the good news. Man, just one sinner to another. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for your word and your words to us this morning, or in just the way that only you, by the power of your spirit, can speak. Lord, you know the week that we've been going through. Lord, you know what brought us to this moment right here, right now, and Lord, what you want us to hear. And so God, I pray that that gospel would be, man, just sweet to us. I think of, I just so frequently think of Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. God, if I could just have a taste, I just... Man, I just think of the brokenness and the pain in this world. I think of the hurt, the longing for God's righteousness and justice to come on the earth. God, we, we, we messed it up when we rebelled against you. You had a perfect plan, a perfect way. But God, I thank you that you didn't leave us there. Because God, you're rich in mercy. You saved us by grace, sending your son for us. Jesus, nourish our hearts right now as we take communion, as we worship you. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that you would, amen, just do a work in us, Lord. Give us humility, give us a, a joy in the faith that we can have confidence that we know you and are known by you. And it's in your blessed name.